Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. And now your host, Eyal Levy. Welcome to the URM Podcast. Thank you so much for being here. It's crazy to think that we are now on our seventh year. Don't ask me how that all just flew by, but it did. Man, time moves fast. And it's only because of you, the listeners. If you'd like us to stick around another seven years, and there's a few simple things you can do that would really, really help us out. I would endlessly appreciate if you would, number one, share our episodes with your friends. Number two, post our episodes on your Facebook and Instagram and tag me at Levy URM Audio and at URM Academy and, of course, our guest. And number three, leave us reviews and five-star reviews wherever you can. We especially love iTunes reviews. Once again... Thank you for all the years and years of loyalty. I just want you to know that we will never charge you for this podcast, and I will always work as hard as possible to improve the episodes in every single way. All we ask in return is a share, a post, and tag us. Oh, and one last thing. Do you have a question you would like me to answer on an episode? I don't mean for a guest. I mean for me. It can be about anything. Email it to me at al at urm.academy. That's E-Y-A-L at U-R-M dot A-C-A-D-E-M-Y. There's no dot com on that. It's exactly the way I spelled it. And use the subject line, answer me al. All right, let's get on with it. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the URM podcast. This is a highly, highly requested episode. My guest today is Adam D., who is known globally for his work as a guitar player, producer, songwriter, and generally known personality for the band Killswitch Engage, as well as uh, his recent I would say longtime side project, Times of Grace. As a producer, he's worked with bands like, well, his own, of course, and The Acacia Strain, All That Remains, Unearth, Under Oath, Shadows Fall, and a ton more. I apologize for the wind chimes in the background of uh, his audio. We did what we could. He was outdoors, but, uh, you know, take what you can get. I was stoked to have him on, stoked to finally talk to him. And I hope that you enjoy it as much as I did. Here goes. Adam D., welcome to the URM podcast. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here, sir. Pleasure to have you here. So one thing I've always wondered about you is what you prioritize, because you do so many different things and you're actually good at them. Uh, Most people who do production and have a band and play guitar are great at one, but suck at the others, but you've managed to make it work. Uh, so I'm wondering what you prioritize. That's all debatable if I'm good at any of them. But uh, there there's really is no priority. Both of them are fun for me. So it, I guess I just, uh, I love going on tour, obviously, with with my, my friends and drinking beers and playing songs and com- connecting with fans. That's, uh, that's kind of what I've been really sticking with the most lately. But, you know, I guess creating music has always been a thing I just truly love. You know, I've kind of been kind of concentrating on creating uh, my own music as of late. And been having a really good time. There's, there's just such a rush with, uh, like, just building something and just watching a song grow up. You know what I mean? So it's a hell of a rush. Yeah. Do you prefer that than, um, say, helping somebody else develop their own song in the production context? Yeah, I do. For some reason, I guess maybe it's 
because I'm a selfish prick. Oh, that's I, yours. I could do that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, I don't know. I've just been getting off on making my own music lately and just the, the freedom of it. Um, whereas if I'm hired as a producer, I really, it's my job to, yes, I can be creative, but it's also respecting what the band and what they sound like and who they want to be and what they want to do. Um, so it's, it's a fine line. I have to dance. I, I, obviously give suggestions and, you know, try ideas. But at the end of the day, I really want the band to be in charge, not me, you know? Do you ever get resistance from bands you're producing because they're afraid that suggestions might be too signature to you? Bands will disagree if I come up with an idea and they don't like it. Um, but I don't even know if it's like a kind of thing where they're like, that sounds too much like your band. And I don't know if that's ever really come out, but, uh, but yeah, it's the way I look at it is, you know, you, you don't know until you try it or suggest it, you know, and a suggestion works sometimes and it sounds better than it did before or a suggestion I give, you know, I, I'll say it and we'll try it. And I'm like, that's a terrible idea. Never mind. Let's, let's go back to the other way. But you just never know. You know, one thing that I think uh, in your generation of producers that became the norm is that producers are also musicians where I think once upon a time, they didn't necessarily have to be. Do you think that that makes it easier to relate to who you're working with? Or like, for instance, Tom Lord Algae was saying that he thinks he has it easier because he's not a musician. Therefore, he can listen like an actual listener. Mm, that's actually a, a great point. Um, as a mixer, that makes a lot of sense. You know, because you want to make that song uh, attainable for the any any layman, any non musician, but a, a music fan. You know, um, whereas I feel production wise, um, I think the opposite. I feel like it's it's good to be able to to play the instruments and relate to what the performer wants to lay down on a on a track and how to execute it properly and how to make it feel like the best performance it can be. Um, and how it can actually add to the entire project that is the song, you know, because at the same, when you look at it at the end of the day, like if I'm a drummer, you know, not all the songs are about drum licks and drum grooves, you know, like, um, but obviously the drums are a, an incredibly vital part of any metal or rock song out there, you know, and, and it's, uh, I think it's a, it's a case with every instrument, you know, and every vocal part, you know, I think the vocals more so, uh, could be the only thing where like you really have to spend a little more time and uh they may mean a little more uh just because that's the instrument that's most relatable to most people because it's a human voice you know yeah i mean if you're changing a kick pattern there's probably not that much emotion behind it <laughs> well there's groove man there's groove it, you know it, it, it can sit different you know and you know people feel things like that you know they do but they're not you know describing some awful thing that happened to them or, you know, recounting some trauma, like lots of lyrics do. Exactly the point I was getting at. Yeah, exactly. Do you find that it's easier or harder when you're producing your own project or your own band as opposed to somebody else's? Because I imagine that you can't help it, but have like big picture visions for anything you're working on. You know, when you're working with other people, it is their vision to a degree. Right, right, exactly. So, 
Yeah, I feel there may be a bit more pressure uh, when working on uh, my own projects, um, just because you, you you want it to be good, you know, obviously. And of course, I want to have to you know other bands that I'm working with. I want their stuff to be good as well. But um, when it comes down to some of the decision making, it, it's it's all on them, you know. Because like I was saying earlier, like it's not my job to tell a band that they need to sound a certain way or be a certain sound or whatever. It's it's my job to just you know make the the the, the shining moments shine a bit more and and the good parts be better and make all of the faults kind of just disappear or hide them and cover them up, you know, that kind of thing. What inspired you to find somebody else to mix your stuff back at the beginning? Because early on, I think producers who are just starting to get good enough to like get stuff done tend to think that they're a lot better than they really are and will make the mistake of mixing their own band stuff. But I thought that having other mixers like Andy was uh, really, really wise. I remember noticing that back at the beginning and uh, thinking that that was a really, really smart move. Like I remember doing the same sort of thing with my band just because uh, I felt like I would fuck the mix up because it was too close to it. So I hired somebody else and it ended up being the uh, the best possible decision in terms of outcome. I'm wondering if you were looking at it kind of like that, like you're too close, my fuck it up, Andy's amazing. That's the thing. I feel like I, I've just made that mistake with the, the Times of Grace record that we just put out. <laughs> not, not that it's like the worst sounding thing I've ever made, but I, I truly feel like it could have been better if, if somebody else's hands were put on it possibly. You know, when you, when you, I'm a firm believer of this. I, like when you spend too much time on something, it, it's only going to go backward. You know what I mean? Um, for me, for my myself, uh, I, can, I should say, I can't spend too much time on a project, or I'll just keep beating it up and beating it up and overanalyze it, and then all of a sudden I'm just doing like these tiny little like, you know, tight Q curved EQ cuts that are like, like what the fuck am I doing, man? Like, remember the days of just like doing analog mix mixing and just like grabbing the notches of like what you don't like and just removing it and moving on. And that was like the vibe you got and it worked out. It sounded great. And now I'm like, here I am like overanalyzing every possible aspect of every EQ curve and every attack and release time. And then all of a sudden I'm just completely burnt out and can't see the light of day anymore. <laughs> it's like, I can't see the forest for the trees. Does it sound good? Does it sound like shit? Uh, well, it's done. So there we go. You know what I mean? So getting somebody involved at the last minute, both with mixing and mastering, I feel like that's the best possible option. Get somebody to mix it and then have somebody else master it. Uh, so you have even an, another person involved in the final processes just because getting another person's head in the mix is just, it's always a good thing to have like another person just do a dummy check and be like, yeah, I see where you're coming from, but try this out. Cool. Awesome. That sounds better. You're right. Yeah. I think there comes a point where you're just making things different. You're not making them better, actually probably making them worse. That's what I'm saying because you don't, you can't hear the original focus and the original idea anymore. You've just beat yourself up so much on work on everything for months, maybe years. And now you're just like, cool, I can't even tell if it sounds good. I'll just keep notching things until maybe it's I feel better about my life. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, Which is a it losing proposition. To say that. 
I've done that several times in my career. And it's just, it's never a good situation to be in, man. You know, it's just, it's, it's good to have another, you know, head in the game and having somebody that is going to show you their vision and you work together on it. And it just, it can only make it better. So how do you know where the line is? Like where you are working too much on a project? In a perfect world, if you have a month to track a record, that's plenty. That's more than enough. If you spend more than a month tracking something, you're going to start losing your mind. Getting back to the whole mixing thing, when you spend more time thinking about it, more time than you need to uh, thinking about it, you just beat it up and it loses its direction. Do you limit your hours to, um, you know, like say six hours or eight hours of audio time? I would love that. But in a more, more realistically, I think it's eight to 10 a day just because you need to make sure you get shit done. And having said that, monitor volumes. Don't monitor too loud. Like just monitor quiet. <laughs> You're going to burn your ears out, man. That's uh, one of the things that I started to notice the more and more I got around veterans is it seems like the older they are, the louder they mix, which uh, is only for one reason, which is that their hearing's gone. Yeah, right, right. Though I heard that Andy Wallace mixes at conversation volume and has his entire career. That's how you should do it, man. I, I really think so. You just have less ear fatigue. Well, it explains why he's 70 and still doing it. Yeah, right. 70-something at least. Why did you get into production in the first place? I'm just curious because it seems to me like a lot of metal people from the 90s got into production because they would take their band to local studios that maybe were nice studios, but the engineers didn't know a thing about heavy music and they'd pay a bunch of money for really, really bad recordings. Yeah, I feel like people weren't making good metal recordings back then. It was just hard to find a producer that just, you know, got got the whole, um, you know, let's scoop it out and get some clicky-ass drums and, you know, make it like precision tight and, you know, all that stuff. It was uh, back in the 90s, you know, early 2000s. I, I don't know if that's necessarily what made me want to do it. I've just gotten off on the whole, uh, like I said earlier, just like watching a song grow up and creating that song and like having it start with a riff and turn into like a like oh man this this came out a little different than i expected in the beginning but no i like the direction that it went into and it's this is cool you know it's just it's a rush doing that you know so i guess it's kind of like production is the ultimate songwriting tool absolutely yeah yeah that that makes a lot of sense so do you consider yourself an engineer or is that secondary i would say it's probably secondary i definitely have more fun producing. Like I said, I've caught myself, you know, spending too many late nights, you know, notching out, you know, tight cues and, you know, just doing stupid EQ thing. You're like, what am I doing, man? It's like, I feel like when you're making a record, you should be spending more time making things feel good instead of like overanalyzing things. You know, that's, that's what music's supposed to be, man. It's supposed to be a good time. What was the first time that you heard somebody else mix something that you produced and it was just fucking awesome in a way that maybe you couldn't have imagined. Always working with Andy was a, a cool thing. And it, it doesn't hurt that he's like one of the nicest guys in the world too. He's cool. Yeah, he's great. He's just no nonsense. Uh, he's like an old schooler like me and just gets gets the job. It may not be as uh, dramatic as I want some of the mixes to sound, but he's really good at just notching things out and making it all sit together and you hear exactly what's going on. So that's that's kind of the definition of what you want a good mix to be. You know, you can hear everything 
and uh, the integrity of the song is there. His mixes are pretty spectacular in terms of uh, how well they work together. I think you actually just said it perfectly. He has a way of getting things just aggressive enough, just big enough to where you never lose anything. Like you're never struggling to hear anything ever in any of his mixes, but he doesn't have that problem where everything sounds super separated or like, you know, the drums are off or like in space. It all sounds like a big aggressive band. I don't know. He's just got a perfect ear or something. Yeah. (laughs) Well, he's been doing it a long time, man. He better be good at it, you know? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I know people who have been doing it a long time who aren't very good at it. When you started off, you were saying that you got an internship at a studio around the same time that Killswitch was starting. How were you, I guess, back then balancing the time between the two things? Oh, man. Even before Killswitch, I was interning while I was just working my day job and then kill switch happened. So that's kind of when I just became like, all right, cool. Well, I got to quit my day job because I got to try this band and see what happens. And I guess the internship turned into more of like um, a session worker and I would just balance between doing sessions and touring to availability. I was really fortunate to be able to just keep everything I was doing music related at that point instead of working crappy day jobs and stuff like that. So I've been very fortunate in in that aspect just to say that I've made my living off of music for like the last, uh, geez, like 19 years. Yeah. 18 years. When did you quit your last uh, real world job? Probably 2001. Right when we first started doing like real tours. Mm Mm-hmm. We were weekend warriors for quite some time, but then we we just started doing like like real tours where we'd have to obviously you know rent a van and a trailer and, and just drive ourselves around the U.S. And, you know, play what we could that kind of thing. So, yeah, it's probably early two thousands, two thousand one. Yeah. What went into getting the internship in the first place, and then not only just getting it, but then being upgraded to someone that actually got paid? Hard work, just spending the hours, spending the spending the time and getting your hands dirty, you know, to think about it. Like I, I went to Berkeley and I probably got learned more from my internship than I did in my four years of school. You actually finished Berkeley? (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, I did. One of the few. Wow. That's like such a rarity. Yeah. It's like, whoa, you made it past year one. That's incredible. I'm like, dude, I got my diploma. David Bowie handed me my diploma. I dropped out. What did you major in? Uh, MP&E. Oh, that's like the one legit major that and I think music business was at the time, but uh, I think MP and E was one of the only legit programs there. They they had a really good. Um, the actual desks they had there were cool uh, at the time. I don't know what they have now, but the, the program itself was pretty good for being what it is. You know, it's because like like I said, you can't really learn engineering until you're you know, hands-on in the studio and, and seeing things happening and, and doing things yourself. So given that, it's it's a pretty good program for what it is, at least when I was there. They had a variety of mediums. You know, I'm pretty sure they had some, I think they actually had some kind of DAW at that point. The first version of Pro Tools, whatever the hell it was. God, it was forever ago. We were doing mostly two-inch tape at that point, yeah. Do you think it prepared you for the internship at the very least? Yeah, maybe a little bit, especially with like outboard gear. And the studio I worked in actually had one of the same desks that uh, Berkeley had in one of the studios. So that was pretty cool. That made it easy. 
Um, but you know, as, as long as you understand the, the the basics of signal flow, you can pretty much figure out any desk. So that yeah, I guess it maybe helped a little bit. What was your thinking behind actually finishing? Probably my parents. It's <laughs> a good reason. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're gonna finish college. And you're gonna get a damn job. So there you go. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's that's honestly the reason I went was pressure uh, to go to college, which I don't know if there is now. I have no idea because I don't know anybody that age. But it was extreme pressure coming from my parents. So I just figured, well, this is probably like the closest thing to not going to college. Mm -hmm. but appeasing them. I think that one of the biggest critiques about music school, art school, recording school, any sort of creative school is people do end up saying the same thing you just said. I learned more in like a very small time on my internship than four years at Berkeley. You hear that all the time about mm -hmm. real schools, but some people really, really think they're worth it. So I'm just curious if like you could go back, would you still have gone? You still think it's worth it? Nope. I would have saved a bunch of money. <laughs> what would you have done differently? <laughs> Interned more, I would imagine. Just hang out, be a studio rat for a couple more years. Hands-on experience means a lot more in that industry than saying that you have a degree. Having projects that you can show people, you know, like, hey, I recorded this or I mixed this. Like, I, I was an assistant engineer on this project, you know. I really feel like that's the only thing that gets that any credential that actually matters within the audio industry is just being like, Hey, I did this record. I completely agree with you. It's actually kind of funny. When I was at Berkeley, there was a time period where I was looking at studios in town to record the band I was in, wanted to go to a good place and was willing to drop some money. And so I went and I looked at a bunch of places. And I remember the first place I went to was talking to the engineer and I told him I went to Berkeley and he was like, just don't say that. It just trust me when you go to the studios around here just don't tell them you go there because there's uh because berkeley guys have a bad reputation in this town i could imagine yeah did you hear anything about that no no i i guess i never really uh recorded anything in boston city limits uh the studio i worked at was closer to home so yeah i didn't really do much within the in the city of boston okay yeah apparently that's a that's the thing. It's actually harder to get gigs or anything if you go to Berkeley, at least in Boston. Yeah, yeah. I think there is a bit of a tool aspect when it comes to <laughs> some of the graduates there. Like, well, that dude's a tool and he can't even he can't even play, man. I could say there's probably some some graduates that don't know what they're doing for sure, still. Yeah, I remember a dude who was there for three years and still and he was in the guitar program. This is why this matters. He was there for three years and still couldn't play a single scale. That doesn't make any sense. Right? How is that, how is that even, how are you at a music school and you can't play a scale? In that instruments program as a major. Wow. Wow. That's like the, the school's just taking your money, man. That's like, <laughs> come on, come on, man. Come on. That's what I was thinking when, uh, when I was, when I realized, yeah, what are you still doing on the stuff that was first semester in your third year? You should be on to modal interchange at that, at that point, man, and playing like jazz standards. Come on, dude. <laughs> <laughs> Give me a break. All right. So speaking of modal interchange and theory, what role does that play for you, if any? Zero. <laughs> I figured you were going to yeah. say that. The only thing that came out of that is that um, I guess the ear training courses were good for me too because I... I can hear pitch pretty, a lot better, I guess. Um, and I can just hear a song and I'll, I know what the chord changes are. 
right away. And I can describe like, oh, that chord right there is a modal interchange chord borrowed from this. Um, and just, I can describe things to people, but like, what good does that do me in the real world? You know what I mean? Has it made a difference when working with like, say any of the vocalists you work with or any of the bands you've worked with, if you're trying to propose a change to a song? Funny story. Most people that I work with don't know music theory. So I can be like, Hey man, that note doesn't work there because this is actually a borrowed chord from a different key. So we need to alter that scale. Here and like, oh, I, uh-huh. I didn't know that. Cool, Dude, I can try it. If it sounds better, I'm gonna keep it. Some people are just like, no, I like it the other way, better out of key. I'm like, okay, that's fine too. Whatever you want to do, man. You know, it's just so. It just, I guess, it really just doesn't matter. You know. Do you find that uh, communicating with people who don't know theory at all becomes more challenging if you do know theory? No, nah, not at all. Um, honestly. I feel like if people do know theory, it's just a bit of a relief because the conversation's quick. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, well, yeah, of course. Yeah, bang, yeah, bang. You know, like, you know, or like, oh, no, I love, but I like the grind of that, like, that note. It's almost like a tension. Like, all right, cool. So, and, then, and it's like a, just a quick thing. Like, as long as you're aware of what you're doing, <laughs> that kind of thing. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I've always thought that if you just look at it as a way to describe, how things work relative to each other, it's a great thing. If you start looking at it as some sort of Bible for how you should write music or play, then it can be a problem. Right, exactly, exactly. I don't write anything based on theory. I write with your ear. Those are the things that come out feeling the best. Write with your brain, write with your your heart. And then that's when music sounds the coolest. You know, I, I feel like people who are going to like, well, I'm going to write in this key today, in this scale, in this, and, you know, borrow things for the chorus in here. And like, it, it sounds, it obviously sounds like what it is and just a methodic approach to writing music. I want to move on from Berkeley, but I got to say this last thing. That was one of the things that was super eye-opening, uh, being in theory classes there and having the instructors play me music that they wrote that was, you know, technically and theoretically immaculate, but was like the worst garbage I've ever heard in my entire fucking life. I was about to ask you, like, how much fun was it to listen to? Did you ask for a copy of it? (laughs) Absolutely not. (laughs) You know what I mean? It's torture. No. Like 20 years later, that sticks out to me so much because the music was so fucking bad. It was unreal bad. When you're writing, is it a process of kind of fucking around on the instrument until there's something cool and then running with that idea? Or do you have like a bigger vision in mind? Like you kind of hear the song first and then try to download it? Nine times out of 10, uh, when I write a song, it starts with me not even holding an instrument. It's really strange. I almost feel like physical stimulation. It makes my brain work. You know, I'm out like taking a hike or I'm walking my dog or, or I'm jogging or something or whatever. And I'll just like sounds and like, you know, drum grooves will pop in my head. And I'll, I'm, I'm the king of like, just, you know, grabbing my cell phone and like singing the part into my cell phone and then um, go home, play it on guitar. And it all starts with that one riff. And then just goes from there. Has that always been your method for cataloging things when you're not at a DAW? Yep, absolutely. <laughs> I've never done that, but I obviously I know several people who have. I guess that in order to pull that off, your singing would have to be semi-accurate. Or you remember the original idea that you had and 
if the singing is a little off, whatever, you know, just get it close. How detailed do the ideas get? They're very basic, actually. Uh, it starts, like I said, it either starts with a drum groove or a guitar groove. Um, I've actually had some bass ideas too, but mostly a drum groove or a guitar groove or a melody. Take it from there. And then um, a lot of the times it doesn't even work out. You know, like I'll, I'll get back in, in front of my computer and grab my guitar and start laying something down. And um, I'll spend like, you know, three hours on it put it away and like, you know, get up the next morning, have a cup of coffee, listen to it and be like, well, that's absolute <laughs> trash and just delete, just drag and drop into the trash can and start over. So you do delete stuff. Oh God, so much. You, you wouldn't believe it. Yeah. I think um, quality control is a, a very important thing when you're a songwriter, you know, don't make everything. It's good to make mistakes and then throw them out. I actually completely agree with you. This is just a running debate that I've had on my podcasts, um, because there are some people who are very good writers who believe in deleting nothing, but that they still believe in quality control. But like, for instance, I heard this one system the other day that uh, made a lot of sense. So this dude will write the entire album in one session in a DAW. What? Yeah, just hear, the, hear this out. He writes the entire album in one session, but if he doesn't, I mean, this is applicable to a song too, but uh, if he likes an idea but doesn't know what to do with it in context of that song, he just color codes it green. If the idea fucking sucks, he color codes it red. And if he kind of likes it but not sold, then it's yellow. And he says that that way it really saves his ass multiple times when he comes to a part in a song and uh, doesn't know what to do or... There's some sort of some sort of a block. Uh, he's got all these green parts that are fucking cool, just didn't find their way into a song at the time. He says that a good 50% of the time, he'll find the solution right there in the green. Um, mm. Or when he's just not having good ideas, uh, using one of the greens to spark something works. I've always been pro-delete. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, everyone's different. You know, I think, uh, there is a, a method to that guy's madness because when he gets to a part and can't feel what's next to have an option that can fit, that's great to have. There's a method to his madness. I can see that. Oh yeah. He's sick. What do you do when you get to a part and you don't know what's next? I stop working on it and put it away and do that thing. Wake up the next morning and grab my coffee and listen to it and see if anything pops into, uh, any bulbs light up, you know, and uh, usually it works and sometimes it doesn't. And that song just never gets finished and I trash it. <laughs> How long do you give it before you've decided this was just a firing blanks? I may have some half written songs on, on a hard drive inside. I have no idea. <laughs> I guess it's kind of like that dude's method where it's like, I, I really like how that song starts, you know, so I'm not going to really throw it out just yet. It just kind of sits there, you know, but if I listen to it and I'm, it just doesn't feel good and like this song's going nowhere, it's just knowing that it's like, that's trash. I got to get rid of it. I want less clutter. I don't want to see any more songs that I need to finish or whatever. Or like, it's just, if it doesn't feel good to listen to, make sure to just get rid of it. Cause it's just, yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, what you just said was actually one of the reasons that he does keep things um, is cause you just said, you might have half an album written on a hard drive. You're not sure. He said the reason that he does it is because we tend to forget 
so many things that we've written because it, you know, it happens in the moment and then the moment's over and we move on. And if it doesn't get finished, you'll probably forget. And there, how many sick things have you written that are just in the ether? They said that through doing that, there's been lots of those that turn into like a soundtrack or so, you know, something for a YouTube video or whatever. Like just because we forget so many cool things that we write, if we write a lot. Yeah, I'm, I'm that kind of mentality, I guess. It's just like, eh, if I throw it away, it does get released into the ether and uh, maybe somebody else will pick it up. Maybe I'll write it again sometime. <laughs> Who knows? Have you found yourself doing that, writing something a second time inadvertently? I've definitely written some riffs that I'm like, ah, oh, shit, that sounds pretty close to something that I've already done. What am I thinking? And just scrap it, you know, that kind of thing, for sure. Is that a rule? Yeah, I don't want to write like the, a riff that sounds remarkably close to another song that I've written. Everybody jokes that ACDC has been writ- writing the same record for 30 years. But if it, there is like a cool thing to having a, a signature sound, I guess. But you know, it's, it's also good to challenge yourself and try to write different sounding parts uh, when you can. You know? Do you think that having a signature sound is something that you should strive for or something that just happens naturally as a result of making music everything should feel natural absolutely obviously for kill switch say i don't we don't want to write something that's completely I don't know, out of left field like just like what are they thinking like we don't want to like alienate any of our fans um so i guess when we go into writing a, a song or writing a, an album it's still i'd like to keep it somewhat within the same thing you could say we do have a signature sound because of that and I, that's kind of the reason why I wanted to write another Times of Grace record because it was an, an opportunity for me to like actually step out of that uh, that pigeonhole and do something completely different. And it feels good, you know. It feels great to write songs that aren't metal. And it's you know because I don't listen to metal exclusively. You know, I just like music. So it sounds like the Kill Switch signature sound is a process of exclusion rather than trying really hard to have that signature sound. It's just cutting out the stuff that doesn't fit it and using it for you know, Times of Grace or other projects. Yeah, we're, we're not going to do like acoustic ballads for Kill Switch Engage. You know, I don't think that's... A record of that probably wouldn't uh, be a good thing. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe not. <laughs> yeah, yeah. When you're writing though, like you said, everything should feel natural. If you're following that method or philosophy, then... If you do feel like writing an acoustic ballad, is it more just, well, write the ballad, and then if it doesn't fit the project, then it doesn't fit the project? Yeah, I suppose you could you could say that. I, I don't think we've necessarily written a ballad for that band. I mean, if you were writing, like say you're writing. Well, I don't know. Do you guys write all together, or do you write on your own? Or I think we've all become so tired of writing on our own. I've ended up writing a lot of the, the records the last several records because I moved away from the East Coast, um, whichever where everyone else is. So we don't even get together to practice. We barely see each other. So so I'll tend to, to write a bunch of music and you know Justin will write a bunch of stuff and then Mike will write some stuff and and Joel will write some stuff and then we'll just kind of email ideas to each other. Some finished, some unfinished. Where do you live? I live in California now. Ah, uh, okay. But we're tired of having the songs being put together like that. 
we want to feel like a band again. Whenever we start writing music again, I think we're just going to do the whole, uh, maybe rent out a house and jam on it. And if it's good, just record it right then. Getting back to like the whole uh, keeping things fresh and keeping things like motivated and exciting while you're working on it instead of beating it up and spending too much time on a project, you know? There's so many pros and also cons to modern technology and what it does for writing. I think I think there's a level of detail and refinement that you can go to that you can drive you can drive yourself batshit crazy man that's the con you can't you can't go into that level of detail when everyone is together and it's loud as shit but at the same time it's harder to get a vibe happening when everything's done separately through a DAW right I mean I know that you're saying that you're sick of writing on your own do you have overall a preference? I wouldn't say that I'm necessarily sick of it. I think it's it's better when everyone is there and involved and it it not only makes the song more varied, but it also it's it includes everyone in the band. So everyone in the band feels like it's part of them. And I feel like that's that's a big payoff when you're on stage. You know, if everyone is playing a song, they're like, this is part of me. And like, you can, you can feel like they, it's almost like they enjoy the song a little bit more, you know? Yeah. As opposed to having the hired gun feel. Yeah. That's exa- like, there's a lot of songs we play live where I'm like, I guess at this point, since we've been playing them for so many years, it's kind of like their song, but I'm sure there's songs that we've been playing live, like the newer songs that like, you know, say Joel or Mike or Justin are like, I have nothing to do with the, the, the creation of this song so it's not really my favorite like some of the songs that i didn't write when i play it i'm like like some of joel's songs i'm like i would have never written this riff like this but you know it's it's cool so we just think different you know at this point in time though like do you have that feeling like you said like you've been playing it for so long even if you didn't write it it's just part of your dna now or does it still feel like somebody else's song yeah yeah I guess when I've been playing a song for 10 years, it's now my song. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty comfortable at that point. I can pretty much not even look at my guitar and play the song. Hey, everybody. If you're enjoying this podcast, then you should know that it's brought to you by URM Academy. URM Academy's mission is to create the next generation of audio professionals by giving them the inspiration and information to hone their craft and build a career doing what they love. You've probably heard me talk about Nail the Mix before, and if you're a member, you already know how amazing it is. At the beginning of the month, Nail the Mix members get the raw multi-tracks to a new song by artists like Lamb of God, Angels and Airwaves, Knock Loose, Opeth, Meshuggah, Bring Me the Horizon, Gojira, Asking Alexandria, Machine Head, and Papa Roach, among many, many others. Over 60 at this point. Then at the end of the month, the producer who mixed it comes on and does a live streaming walkthrough of exactly how they mix the song on the album and takes your questions live on air. And these are guys like TLA, Will Putney, Jens Bogren, Dan Lancaster, Tui Madsen, Andrew Wade, and many, many more. You'll also get access to MixLab, which is our collection of dozens of bite-sized mixing tutorials that cover all the basics as well as Portfolio Builder, which is a library of pro-quality multitracks cleared for use in your portfolio so your career will never again be held back by the quality of your source material. And for those of you who really want to step up their game, we have another membership tier called URM Enhance, which includes everything I already told you about and access to our massive library of fast tracks, which are deep 
super detailed courses on intermediate and advanced topics like gain staging, mastering, low end, and so forth. It's over 500 hours of content, and man, let me tell you, this stuff is just insanely detailed. Enhanced members also get access to one-on-ones, which are basically office hour sessions with us, and Mix Rescue, which is where we open up one of your mixes and fix it up and talk you through exactly what we're doing at every step. So if any of that sounds interesting to you, if you're ready to level up your mixing skills in your audio career, head over to urm.academy to find out more. So speaking of guitar, just out of curiosity, how important do you think that hands are versus gear when it comes to rhythm tone? Hands are everything. Gear is kind of important. Kind of. Where do you think it becomes important? Uh, you need to feel comfortable on your instrument and you need to have something you like the sound of that you're playing through. When you like what you're, you're playing through, you're more inspired and you play inspired. Now, when you're producing guitar players, do you kind of follow that same mentality? Like say that they have a piece of gear or they're going after a sound that you just don't like, but they're super comfortable with it and they play better with it. Honestly, that's the more important thing right there. The fact that they like it and they're more comfortable with it means you're going to stick with it. Like we're talking about the power of Pro Tools. There's not, it's nothing you can't change later. Very true. The performance is the most important aspect in the studio. You can tweak the sounds as much as you want afterwards. What do you think is like some of the most common but terrible weaknesses that you find guitar players having when it comes to tracking riffs? Like stuff that you have been able to help them correct, I guess. Intonation is a big one. Uh, make sure your guitar is intonated properly. Timing, uh, where you are with the drums, uh, that's another one. You mean like ahead of the beat or behind the beat? Yeah, I'm actually guilty of that a lot. If I'm not comfortable with the riff, I play it uncomfortably and I'm ahead of the beat. But the more comfortable I become, the more I'll sit behind it and kind of chill out and play a bit more relaxed and it just it bounces more that way. I think those are probably the two biggest mistakes, intonation and, and, and timing. And I find that the intonation thing goes deeper than the setup, too. Like, I think the setup is crucial. If, they, if a guitar player doesn't get that done, it's a losing proposition from that point forward. But their left hand, their fretting hand, will fuck the intonation so bad. That's why I play medium frets. I don't play jumbos. Can't take the jumbo thing, man. Do you death grip them? I don't think I do. I just think I got big mealy hands and I feel comfortable on, on smaller frets. There's less uh, possibility of, of knocking something out or bending it too much, you know? Do you put much uh, emphasis on which pick you're using when it comes to tone? Well, obviously, the more pick you get on the string, the, the more you're going to pull it out of tune, the more pick sound you're going to get. Uh, that's, I use little teardrop guys because I've, you know little circular motions are, are good for the intonation and good for control, I think. But I would use a big fat pick, a thin big fat pick for like acoustic strumming or different applications like that, you know, like just wide chords. Mostly, you know, I, I stick with a tiny little teardrop, yeah. And one thing I've noticed about your sound, which I was always curious about, was that it sounded like you were using Evertunes before Evertunes even existed, before they were even on the horizon. I still don't own a guitar with an Evertune bridge. I mean, doesn't sound like you need one, but like your rhythms are so in tune on those uh, older records. Like that always stood out to me because if you hear stuff from the early 2000s or late 90s in general, when people go to chug 
It's just the tuning is uh, it's just the older it gets, the more suspect the intonation is. But your stuff always sounded right in there. So it seems to me like you always focused on it. It's hard, man, especially with the drop C tuning. The low string is a challenge. Yeah, I find myself tuning for different sections of the songs. Obviously, something where there's a lot of down picking and palm muting. I'll find myself dropping my low strings like mm-hmm. 15 cents. But obviously, when you've got big, wide open chords for the choruses, you know, you, you tend to want to strum, you know, a little lighter and tune your guitar closer to, you know, to um, a more proper tuning, you know. Like get get things closer to the the zero cent line, you know. And a lot of it is also checking by ear because everyone plays different, you know. Maybe that dude playing guitar is a bit more of a mangler than you are, so you need to drop down the mangler. That's a good that's a good term. Yeah, so you got to drop like the looser strings, or you know, make sure so because those if the tension is lower on those strings, they're gonna they're gonna move a little more, you know. Yeah, I've always wondered how certain players like like Zach Wilde, are able to play that hard and stay intonated. Yeah. Well, he, he, play, he plays an E, right? E or E flat. Maybe that's part of it. The tuning that the guitar is actually supposed to be in. Exactly. Dude, like this, all the times are great stuff is an E. And I'm like, oh, wow. This is so cool. Wow. Like, it's so easy to keep all this in, in tune. This is amazing. And like, oh, yeah. <laughs> I set myself up for a disaster with kill switch back in the day. So I think all of Opeth's stuff is an E as well. E standard. Right. It just sounds just lively, doesn't it? It's kind of like a drum, you know, like drums start to sound weird when you tune them too low or too high outside of, I guess, what the shell is supposed to be. Uh, every shell has like a, I would say like a pitch area, like and not like a specific pitch, but like a pitch area that it comes to life in. And I think guitars are the same way. Every shell is supposed to be um, have a fundamental yep. tone. Yeah, actually, that's that's why I always like DW. They just print it inside of the shell. And they're like, this is where this thing's happy. Tune it here. It makes a, a huge, huge difference. Do you find it easier to play in E? Uh, well, it's definitely more inspiring sometimes when you hear how like in tune you are. It's like, oh, wow, that's cool, man. This is a... It's a lot easier to play on this thing. Just out of curiosity, do you tune to the attack or the sustain? Well, it depends on which string it is and where we're tuned. If it's drop C, I will tune to the attack. But like I said before, if I'm recording a section that's like open chords and it's like kind of an open strummed section, I will tune the more so the sustain. When you're dealing with two guitar players, both playing rhythm or say a bass player that... uh is actually playing as opposed to, you know, one guitar player playing everything. How do you approach the relative intonation between multiple people? Because that is way more of a challenge than getting one person to, you know, do left, right, center, all relatively the same. It's hard work. We've come to the fruition, me and Joel, it was set like, if we're tracking a record, whoever wrote the song needs to play both guitar parts. Um, we've been doing that like the last several records and it's it's easier. It sucked for me the last couple records because I ended up writing a good amount of the material. So I'm like, cool, now I have this tremendous <laughs> workload. That's awesome. I hate tracking rhythm guitars, man. It's so brutal. Uh, with Mike, we of course I want to have Mike on the record. So uh, Mike, it's all relative. Watch him the way he plays and then um, since he's definitely a mangler we'll have to tune a lot of his strings down a good like hell i've been to points where i'm tuning his low string down like 25 cents for 30 cents for a specific part wow that's pretty far i guess you got to do what you got to do he hits his strings that hard he's just he truly is a mangler yeah 
you guys do have the benefit though of having worked together for a long time and therefore, you know, knowing each other's playing styles, strengths, weaknesses. And, you know, the longer you play with somebody, the hopefully the more in sync you are, uh, in those ways. But when you're working with guitar players in a band that you haven't known for 20 years and you are tracking rhythms, how do you approach those types of issues? Like, especially when there's multiple players, sometimes more than two, even communication, that's it. Let them know, show them. Like if I I feel it's not right, I'll show them what's what I think is wrong and why it's wrong and, you know, let them hear it. It's just communication. Be upfront and be honest. That's really it. And, you know, if, if they're happy with it the way it is, then we can move on and maybe revisit it if we have to. That kind of vibe. I guess communication is kind of the key to key to life. I think in order to have a successful band, I mean, this is true with like anything involving a partnership, but I think people in successful bands have to be expert communicators because there's so much personal shit wrapped up with professional shit is really, really hard to separate the two because we're talking about music and spending all this time together that's not normal. And then for us, when we go on tour, it's 12 dudes on a moving bus, you know, and that's literally where we sleep, where we travel, where we, you know, we're just around each other all the time. So I think communication is just vital. You can't escape these people, man. They're there. (laughs) They're there all the time. Is that something that had to develop over time, like how to do it? Or do you think that maybe uh, you being a producer gave you a bit of an advantage in knowing how to communicate with musicians? Maybe so, because I've, I've been producing for so long. But um, I guess I've, I've always known the importance of being a, an open communicator. And like In order to get something done, you have to be able to be honest and let people know exactly how you're feeling. You know? That's the only way you solve issues. Yeah, it's interesting. Anyone I know who has... Uh, I mean, it's obvious, but anyone I know who's been able to keep this sort of thing going in the long term has basically mastered the art of being forward without being too much of a dick. Sometimes I need to find balance with that because I'll, I'll find myself being too much of a dick. <laughs> it's hard sometimes. Yeah, yeah. But it's, I, you know, love me or hate me, you know, at least I tell you how what, what's going on instead of being passive aggressive, which I feel like a lot that happens a lot with, with my band still. You know, people are just kind of dodging the issue and they're scared to talk about something. And, and like, I'd be scared about it, man. Just get it done. Just like, well, you're going to upset somebody for a little bit and then life will move on. As opposed to stewing on it. Oh, the, st- the stewing is the worst. Then you just b- build animosity and hatred. Yeah. It reminds me a lot of that idea of people debating something that's going to happen. Like, should we do this thing? Should we not do this thing? Should, yes, no, yes, no. And the amount of time that they spend debating it, they could have just done the thing and then figured out if they liked it or not. And then fixed it if they didn't like it. Yeah, exactly. And all that time. Yeah, but being passive aggressive or keeping things inside is like the, it's almost like the exaggerated version of that. Yeah. So when you're working with bands, speaking of communication, how early on in the process do you get involved and how much communication do you have with them before they come to the studio? What I love to do is get 
heavily involved with pre-production. That's a very important thing to do when you're going in and spending all this money in a recording studio tracking. Try to get as much done as you can before you get in that studio so everyone's prepared and on the same page. So you're saving time, you're saving money, and you know everyone has a game plan. I think that's the only way to attack you know, an approach making a record. If you walk in with confusion, you're only just going to drag things along and make them more time-consuming and expensive. You know? Yeah. What's the process like? For years, it just dependent on the scenario. Believe it or not, it's almost impossible sometimes for me to get demos from bands. They just say, like, uh, just send me the damn demo, even if it's in shitty condition. I just want to hear what the... Oh, I believe it. Uh, yeah, they're just like, well, it doesn't sound very good. I'm like, I don't care. Like, just put your phone out in your practice space and just record it. I don't care. Just like, let me hear at least the song structures and see where we're at. You know, like something like, like just, it, it can be as simple as possible. But uh, getting just bare bones demos and hearing those, it's a great place to start. And I'll go through them and say, I like this direction. I don't like this direction. Or if there are vocals down, I'll be able to start critiquing the vocals. That's the way you start. Do you find that bands that you work with tend to come to you wanting your input on the songs? Or is that just depends? Sometimes yes, sometimes no. And I guess it's that first encounter of me going to the demos and giving suggestions that's the really where we figure out like what they want out of me you know if they want me to be involved if they want me to be like no why don't you just calm down over there we're <laughs> we're happy with what we're doing and you know and like okay let's just carry on then let me know what i can do to help out so when they don't want that and you're going through the demos and there's potential but you know that this shit needs work. What's the approach? All I can do is suggest, I guess. You know, I'll suggest and be like, you guys want to try this? If you don't want to try it, we'll keep going. And, you know, it really is up to uh, how open they are to wanting to hear things differently than what they're picturing in it. But like I said, at the end of the day, it's it's their band and it's their their music. And they, they're the ones that need to be proud of what they're doing at the end of the day. You know, like when the record's finished, I just... I go away. It's not my project anymore. They've got to live with it forever. Exactly. Have you ever worked with another producer? Uh, yeah, we had Brendan O'Brien do one of our records. And it was during the... Uh, it's the last record we made with Howard, second singer. Yeah, so I think that was the only one we ever did with somebody else. Yeah, as far as production goes. But you've worked with other engineers or the, it's mainly just mixers that you hire? Other engineers for sure. Not many, to be honest with you. I guess I'm a bit of a control freak. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of good arguments to be made for being a control freak when it comes to something like this that involves this much of a vision. Though I would say that some bands don't have that much of a vision and that's a lot of the times why bringing in. Right. I guess that's the whole thing. I When I'm working on something, I can already hear the finished project in my brain versus, you know, some bands can't, can't do that. You know, I guess I just have... Um, a musical imagination, I guess. Is that something that's always been there? Like since the beginning, you kind of just knew, kind of could see it where it would be going? I just always loved music. I guess that's why I'm able to write songs on my own. I just hear song directions and what feels good. And, and like that's, that's literally what it is. It's just, does it feel good? You know, it should feel fun to listen to. Was the way that your career has turned out, was that always the idea to end up in this sort of position? From day one. To have the music sound good? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you want it to feel good, man. Well, have it sound good, have it feel good, but also have it be the the main thing in your life, not have a job. I guess I knew back when I first started playing 
when I was a teenager, I was just like, man, I, I love, I love music. I love music a lot. It's kind of amazing. And it's like, what, what if, uh, what if I could do this in every day? It would be incredible. And then just gave it a shot. There I am. <laughs> how long would, do you think you would have given it if it wasn't moving quickly or how long did it go before it started to move quickly? Yeah, you know, I feel like if the band didn't work out, I definitely would have tried to just be a house engineer for a recording studio, you know, just to do, you know, hired gun sessions, things like that. And if that didn't work out, then I would have to start from scratch. <laughs> now let's do, let's try something completely different. But it sounds like the idea was you're going to create a living off of music one way or the other. I, I really wanted to. Absolutely. You know, I know it's easier said than done. So I've just been fortunate enough to be able to, to get away with doing it. Well, you said something earlier that I think is key. You would have rather had a job in music than a non-musical job. Basically, even if the job in music wasn't like the perfect job, at least it's in music as opposed to something else. I don't think everyone feels that way. I think some people feel like the only way they would want to do music as a job is if it's the exact right situation. And then they would rather have some alternate job if the music job can't be the perfect scenario. I, I'm not yeah, like that, yeah. but uh, but I know a few that are. A lot of people are motivi motivated by the almighty dollar instead of joy. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so there you go. I like to be happy. I think that means a little bit more than, than money. Money will not make you happy. I know it's a cliche, but it's absolutely the truth. It makes you feel safe, but it, you know, you're not happy. No. So I don't want to take up your entire day. We have a few questions from listeners. It's cool if I ask them. Rattle away. All right, cool. This one is from Scott Bennett. And uh, he's wondering, what was the first thing you noticed when you tried uh, Fishman pickups for the first time? They are a little bit just heavier than EMGs, just louder, louder, more alive. Uh, and they don't distort when you, uh, when you put them through a DI, which is incredible because they're louder. So I don't know if the, the EMGs are just more compressed and the output stage isn't correct on them. I think 81 still have a place in the universe. They they do do that sound and they, they sound magical, but I am happier with the Fishmans. So a question for Matthias Schilling, which is, uh, how do you find a balance of pushing artists slash singers to their best while still watching out for their mental health and uh, not to uh, burn them out? You're known for being very, nope, another take in the studio. Thanks. I'm pretty brutal. Uh, <laughs> But like I said before, honesty is the best policy. It, you know, I think having the singer feel comfortable is a very, very important aspect of being in the studio. Because if the singer is comfortable, it's just like, if they're inspired, you hear that in their performance. It's just like what I was talking about with a guitar player earlier. If the guitar player likes their sound and it makes them want to play, and you hear that in the, in the take, in the performance. What about vocalists? Same thing, just as long as they're comfortable. They like the vibe, they like the song, they're not too burnt out. And don't let them spend too much time on one thing because they'll start you know, not paying attention and be like, how many times do I have to do this? I can't do it any better. It, it'll be the kind of thing where like, I'll save the best take and we'll move on to another section so it's fresh and keep it fresh and like, you know, alive feeling and inspired. That's, I think it's an important thing with anyone. When in the process do you start working on vocals? Honestly, as soon as possible, just so the vocalist doesn't feel like they have a, such a tremendous workload to handle. 
you know, when they're comfortable and ready to work on a, a song, I'll be like, let's do some vocals today. Let's, let's get going on it. I think one of the biggest mistakes of heavy music production is that traditional idea of waiting till the very end with vocals. No, don't do that. Don't do that. <laughs> it's such a bad idea. Yeah, then, then the vocalist is screwed. Cool, we spent like two weeks on drums and now I have three days to do an entire record. You guys suck. Like, you know, like the budget's out. Well, can you finish your vocals in three days? Try your best. Like that's, like I said earlier, like I think the vocals are sometimes the most important aspect of the song because that's what people relate to. Yeah, it's asking for a disaster to wait to the very end. Philip Self is wondering, is it true that Bless the Martyr and Kiss the Child by Norma Jean were recorded live fully analog? And uh, if so, what was that experience like and how did it contribute to the feel of the album? Incorrect. Incorrect. Well, then how did it not contribute to the feel of the album? Well, no, it was not analog. No, I'm kidding. We did it mostly, mostly live though. They tracked everything together and there were things where we had to go back and just fix it's, it's hard for a band to play all together and everyone get everything perfect the first take, you know? So we would do full takes and then we would go back. If a guitar player screwed up a section, um, they could just punch that in real quick. But we still kept the integrity of the full take. So you could say that, like, you know, it was not like chopped in sections. They would all get in the room together and they would all jam the song out and then the best take we'd keep and then just fix whatever individual mistakes were made. Heavy music recorded live is a daunting proposition. Yeah, <laughs> there's a lot of room for error, man. It's almost like not, you know, there's exceptions, but it's almost kind of not really a genre that's designed for live recording. Yeah, true. I would agree with that. I'd say if you have a metal band that you know, tends to lean towards more of the, the rock and roll sound, it can work really, really well, actually. Or if they're just aliens like Mishuga. Yeah, right. Jesus, that that drummer Tomas dude. He's he's always been like one of my favorite um, just performers of any instrument. You know, just favorite musician. He's just insane, man. Like, I, I can honestly tell you, like, you know, they ask records that change your life. You know, that whole uh, Destroyer Race Improve record, I, I think, is just a crowning achievement for that like super prog metal. Uh, genre just because of how real and dynamic that guy plays on that record but still how inhumane the parts are there's still such hand dynamic and stick dynamic to all of the phrasing that he's doing but at the same time it's the the most like incredibly technical drum drumming you could ever have i don't know if you're familiar with uh, our uh, nail the mix program it's a uh, online mixing school where we basically will get the actual tracks will license the actual tracks and get the person who mixed it to show how they did it. And we had uh, Daniel Bergstrand do uh, Future Breed Machine. Um, I guess uh, Frederick found an ADAT with uh, that on it somehow and they transferred it to digital and then we went through those tracks and uh, they are every bit as incredible as people would expect them to be and from 1994 yeah that's the thing like that's why that record shocked me from the beginning because you can just tell you can tell it's, those are actual performances no click yeah that's incredible right everything today is so just computer generated daw generated it's just i'm tired of it like that's why i made this times of grace record so like just real it's flawed but you know i didn't use 
much for amp modeling. It's all real amplifiers and it's all real drums. And it's all real bass. And, you know, it's like, I, I feel like people, it's the lost art of making a record with real things, you know? <laughs> you know? It's interesting. I think that there's a move back towards that. I hope so, man, because I'm getting tired of this crap. <laughs> like every band, every band sounds the same, man. Every band sounds the same. Or maybe I'm just getting old. I don't think that's what it is. I think that sound just kind of reached peak saturation. But I mean, look, we've done like a hundred nail the mixes now in like six years. And this is going to be like podcast episode 360 or something. So I've talked to a lot of people that do this and we've had a lot of bands on. And I can definitely tell you that it really seems like there's a backlash and from all age groups. So it's not just dudes that are, you know, from the nineties or something being like, Oh, it was cooler in my day. Uh, there's a lot of, uh, the new generation also who grew up with DAWs and streaming and all that who are making a huge effort to learn how to track real instruments. And, uh, it's kind of almost correcting itself. Like it went too far into fake and uh, it seems like it's correcting itself. I, I hope so, man. At least from my vantage point. So question here from James Hyatt. How do you get the mids to be so clear but not overpowering on your guitar tones? And how much do you shape the sound between the mic and uh, Pro Tools? Uh, if you want more mids, turn your mids up. Um, <laughs> turn your trouble down. People put too much trouble in their guitar tone and too, way too much fucking bass. Everybody uses too much low end in their in their guitar tones. I need to get one of those those uh, mic positioners that you can do remotely because uh, I'm so tired of walking in between two different rooms. Oh, the, the robot? Yeah, I've been meaning to buy one of those. I think they're called Dynamounts, I believe. Yeah, they, they, I think they're actually made here in San Diego too. Mic position is everything. Look like, like your cone, depending on what like actual speaker you're using, your cone can color your, your tone so much. It's, it's incredible. So it's just... You have to be very mindful of what you're looking for with your guitar tone and, and how much of that cone attack you actually want out of your guitar tone. I mean, I know that there's some really amazing sounding heavy records that have zero EQ on the guitars because... How the fuck do people do that? <laughs> by going insane for like two or three weeks straight, finding the millimeter difference in the mic position... I can't do it, man. I've, I've driven myself crazy too many times. God, I can't. you're hard. making me stressed out just thinking about it. Like, can we just stop talking about this? <laughs> Talk about anything else except mic position on guitar cones. All right. Speaking of stressing people out from Carl Ha, he says the studio can be a grinding environment. And what was one time that someone was ready to throw in the towel? And uh, how did you help bring them back? Oh, boy. I think it's just time. Taking a break, stepping away from the project for a second when you're at a, an absolute level of frustration. Like say if one member is really struggling with something, you should be like, hey man, why don't you just take a couple hours and we'll come back to it. Or we can come back to it tomorrow because there are four other band members that I need to work with. I think that's the approach to take because when you spend time beating yourself up over something that you're not ready to perform or you're not in the right headspace to perform, then you're literally just wasting time. And you're making yourself feel worse than you need to. You know, like like I said, there's other things that we can do. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Like there's never a shortage of things you could possibly work on. Question from uh, Ben Wamberg. Does your 
mixing or production approach change from one vocalist to the next or more from one genre to the next? And for example, um, you know, obviously working with Howard uh, versus Jesse or working with a higher range vocals from someone like Aaron Gillespie. Do you take a different approach? It all depends on the treatment of the song. I might even approach working with the same singer uh, differently for different songs. It's just completely, you know, subject to the uh, the material that we're working on. Okay, this has been asked like 50 times, and I'm sure you've been asked it 50,000 times, but they haven't heard the answer because they're asking. So Alex Ryan and 50 other people are wondering, how the fuck do you get those pinch harmonics? By squeezing the pick and then tapping your thumb on said string and then shaking it with this <laughs> hand. <laughs> that's, that's it, man. That's, it's that easy. Obviously, like if you just spend time practicing pinch harmonics, you'll find ex- like where you like your thumb near the bridge and then how wide do you want your vibrato. I think it's funny with those types of questions, and I'm sure you've been asked it way too many times, but it's funny to me how the answer is always just spend time on it. Nike, just do it, man. Yeah. There's never like some magic to it. Get on your squealy game, bro. I remember hearing those pinch harmonics and just thinking, man, he must have sat there for a long time. I think Joel and I just always loved pinchies. So like, I remember like the first time hearing Zach Wilde being like, this dude's sick. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> or even Dimebag, like this dude is so sick. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I just, I've always loved Pinchies. I really hope that listeners kind of pull that from all these episodes that that's kind of the overarching theme with almost any of these like technical questions or stylistic questions that they ask is uh, just fucking practice it. Yeah, just try it. It's funny, I don't really practice practice guitar very much, but I when I was learning guitar, like, that was one of the first things I wanted to learn is like, how do people do squealies? And I'm like, oh, cool. And then I just got into doing it and now I know how to do it. So once you learn it, you got it. I mean, not to like get too nerdy about it, but you had to focus and basically just went for it from the start. You're very, very clear about what you wanted to achieve. I grew up listening to Eddie Van Halen. Of course I'm going to play pinchies. Jeez. <laughs> you said that you don't really practice guitar anymore, but did you when you were uh, when you were growing up? Like, was it much more of a regimented sort of thing? Yeah. My favorite thing to do when I first picked up guitar was just listen to a song and try mm-hmm. to figure it out. I think that that's the best way to learn guitar. Where did the the rhythm playing come from, I guess? Like, like technically speaking. Metallica. Metallica, yeah. <laughs> Down picking yep. that shit. One hundred percent. Learn how to play uh, Master Puppets record, start to finish. Man, that is uh, a monumental task, actually, to actually play it. Down picking the way he does. It's a lot of work. I don't think I can play that record all the way through anymore. I've forgotten everything. But yeah, just listen to the actual song, Master of Puppets. That's a cool riff, man. Like, get your down picking like all set with that. And learn how to do that. Hell, like some of our new songs. Like, if I take a break from practicing those songs like when it comes time to uh pick up the guitar and get ready for tour they kick my ass (laughs) they're hard man it's a lot of down picking it's amazing how ahead of their time those techniques were yeah james hetfield just being a badass man yeah fucking beast all right question from philip self he says i remember you saying in an interview that you weren't happy with the drum sound on as daylight dies however it ended up sounding amazing 
So how did you solve that problem? Unfortunately, a bit of sound replacement on the snare. <laughs> it happens. Yeah, yeah, of course. I think I believe we kept the toms. But uh, the overheads that were too stoked on just because of the um, the room and the mics that we used. It, I was completely out of my element in that studio. We ended up doing it in this like old house in Massachusetts. Uh, I think that studio's since closed. Uh, why can't I think of the name? Oh, it was like an old classic recording studio in East Brookfield. Well, there's also been like 8 million studios that have closed. I know, exactly. Like, that's, oh man, I'm so happy I never owned my own studio. That's, can you imagine? Like, <laughs> yes. Now that everybody just rec- records entire records in their own bedroom, like, oh, to be a studio owner in the last 10 years is not a good thing. Yeah, just honestly, just making it work and um, unfortunately having to rely on um, some sound replacement here and there. I mean, that's what sound replacement's for, those situations. Those moments where you're like, oh God, I'm not happy with the way that snare drum's cut in there. Yeah, here we go. And then problem solved. Cool. Yeah. I mean, everyone has those moments. So you've never had your own studio? No, no. Uh, just like a home studio that I record our records from. Except I still, I'm a stickler for trying to keep uh, as many real drum tones and overheads and stuff as we can. Obviously, you want the overheads to be like the best possible thing they can be um, since they're kind of integral to like the way the yeah. drums feel completely. So uh, we always track drums in a nice drum room, no matter what, just to make sure that we can keep those as real as possible. And then I'll end up just tracking the rest of the record in my house, wherever I live. Do you uh, kind of share the sentiment that I think a lot of studio people have that a good drum sound is uh, almost defined by how good the drums sound in the overheads and rooms? A hundred percent. That's why I spend hours on hours tuning drums and um, matching cymbals and getting the right mic placement and mic choice. Those things count, man. They're important. Super, super important. Um, when it comes to drum tuning, do you take sample hits before a song just so you have a tuning reference for when they invariably go out? Damn right I do. Well, especially the snare drum because that, that son of a bitch slips all the time depending on how hard your drummer hits and how new the snare head is. Yeah, there'll be takes where we're like, I'll try to get the drummer to do a full take and then we'll punch things in. And then when we punch in, like the snare drum's like so much lower than the, the take that was there. Like, oh my God, it slipped that much already? Jesus. So like, you know, we're having to tune the snare drum before we punch in fixes, you know? Do you use lug locks or anything like that? Even with lug locks, it still slips. Yeah, they're not perfect. Nope, nope, definitely not. Now that when in the drum world, nothing is perfect. Not even the pitch of a drum. I think lug locks are better than nothing, but... It still doesn't solve the problem, though. No, I think anyone who produces should either get good at tuning drums or find a drum tech that is always going to be available to them. Amen. One or the other. I think that's the thing that surprises uh, most bands that I work with. They'll see me just come into the, the tracking room and start tuning the drummer's drums for them. They're like, no, nope, let me do it. I'll, I'll do it for you. Don't worry. Because I, I want it to be right, man. Man, how often have you worked with a drummer that actually knows how to tune their drums right? Yeah, once in a while. But a lot of them are just actually just lazy. Which <laughs> <laughs> is the fun. Like, I don't know, man. I don't know what I'm doing. Just, you do it. Like, that. that's usually like the answer. Like, okay, I'll do it. The other thing is... Uh, Find a, a professional to set up the guitars if you don't know how to do it. I think uh, letting the guitar player in the band do it is a bad idea. I can do it too. It doesn't matter. Just let me do it. <laughs> <laughs> just, I'll get I'll get it done, man. Just let me do it. Let's just make sure it gets done right. 
So question from Jordan Weathered, which is, uh, how was writing for Times of Grace this time around different than the last album? I assume you're in a better physical state than when you had your back surgery. So curious how the mental process was different on this album than the last, considering. The physical state is debatable. Mental state is also debatable. <laughs> the whole thing with this project is just the fact that I can, I can be different and I have freedom and I can, I can sing more, I can write lyrics, I can take the song in whatever whatever direction I want to take it in. It's just complete, absolute freedom for me as a songwriter and it feels, it's a lot of fun for me. So Mahmoud Katan is wondering, what's your process these days for working on song arrangements aside from the usual metal instruments? It depends on the vibe of the song. If I hear like textures or something, um, you know, I obviously like adding things uh, that aren't necessarily like within the band um, always can take the song into a, a cool d- direction. I think it's just, it always boils down to just using your imagination and do what feels right. If you feel like the song needs more, give it more. If the song is feeling great the way it is, don't try not to touch it and mess it up too much. Awesome. Well, uh, Adam D, I want to thank you for taking the time to hang out. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Awesome. Thanks, man. Yeah. Thanks for letting me uh, be a part of it. All right, then. Another URM podcast episode in the bag. Please remember to share our episodes with your friends, as well as post them to your Facebook and Instagram or any social media you use. Please tag me at Audio at URM Academy, and of course, tag our guests as well. I mean, they really do appreciate it. In addition, do you have any questions for me about anything? Email them to me at al at urm.academy. That's E-Y-A-L at urm.academy and use the subject line, answer me, al. All right then, till next time, happy mixing. You've been listening to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. To ask us questions, make suggestions, and interact, visit urm.academy and press the podcast link today.